morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the October 19th, 2021 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, it's all art, studio and performance art, and it's all local. Tyler Stallings returns to the program in his capacity as director and curator at Orange Coast College's Doyle Arts Pavilion. The Doyle's current installation of 32 artists' work is on display at What Will Remain? Art in the Time of Human Dominion. Doors are open during special hours, October 11th through December 4th this year. Also returning the program is David Ivers, artistic director at the South Coast Repertory. The company's rolling out the return to live theater at the South Coast Repertory since March 2020's closing. With David Ivers with his own one-man performance in A Shot Rang Out by Richard Greenberg. Production runs October 2nd through November 6th. We'll be right back after a station break. Thank you for staying tuned all. This is Ask a Leader. I'm still taking a stock of We're Live. And live today, my first guest, Tyler Stallings, director and curator at Orange Coast College's Doyle Arts Pavilion with the current installation on display, and it's entitled, What Will Remain Art in the Time of Human Dominion? Tyler was formerly artistic director at UC Riverside's Arts Block and the Sweeney Art Gallery. He's juried at the Orange Coast Contemporary Center for Art, entitled Artist Protest at the Center. His other curatorial projects focus on contemporary art, with a special emphasis on the exploration of identity, technology, photo-based work, and urban culture. Tyler has organized exhibitions as program director for the Huntington Beach Art Center and chief curator at the Laguna Art Museum. He's also worked for the City of L.A. Cultural Affairs Department. In addition to serving as the artistic director at the University of California Riverside Cultural Center of the Arts, he's also contributed scholarly essays to several books and is columnist for KCET's TV's Artbound program. And he comes to us today from his Art Pavilion office in Costa Mesa. Folks need to be on the lookout for his films at the OC Film Festival. Carlos being of light and hometown proud, Tyler, comes to us today from his Doyle office. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Tyler Stallings. Thank you, Claudia. Glad to be here again. Thanks so much. Well, thank you. And I'm saying thank you, for sending me some amazing exhibits over the last year since your previous appearance on the show, which is to say, folks, that Tyler has his duties at particular cultural centers, as I mentioned in the, the introduction and, and elsewhere, and he is also supporting enterprises throughout the region. He's everywhere and he's available. So thanks for that. Well, congratulations on this current installation you've curated and directed the theme on display at what will remain art in the time of dominion. Art, time, and dominion are all doing the work in this exhibit. Maybe you could start, because people are hearing the word Anthropocene a good deal. You make, Tyler, the distinction between your theme and the Anthropocene era label. 
Right. Yeah. So this is a group exhibition of, um, you know, 30 something artists. And, you know, the idea um, came about because I had been thinking about the Anthropocene and that Anthropocene for people who may not be familiar is um, kind of proposed more by cultural theorists, new epic, um, geologic epic, and that indicates the um, pervasiveness of human influence around the world. And the point or what they would call the golden spike, which indicates that influence around the world would be the um, explosion of the uh, nuclear bombs, um, atom bombs, in the mid-1940s, um, meaning that they then find radiation throughout the world, you know, and that is the indicator or kind of the starting point for this new epic. However, you know, geologists don't officially um, take that on. They still say we're in the Holocene, which is uh, has been going on for about 11,000 years right now. Um, but uh, it's still a valuable concept to really make us think about um, the human influence, you know, that we do have on the world. So for me, you know, as you kind of indicated, I've, I've tried to take a little bit of a, a contrarian point of view and sort of push myself to kind of move past the more, the more fatalistic point of view that Anthropocene um, kind of suggests, and meaning that it, by the word itself, anthro, being there, um, meaning human, that it continues to posit a human-centric point of view, whereas I would rather look at other words that are being developed purposely to contrast to Anthropocene, such as symbiocene, which would um, suggest more of a symbiotic relationship between humans and, and all other living things, non-human animals, plants, the planet as a whole. So that's the approach that I, I tried to take in the show um, and with the artists that were selected. So Anthropocene as a word, it's certainly, it's moved. What's interesting about it, and we could say maybe Symbiocene to a greater extent increasingly, they are being explored not just in these environmental science domains and, you know, geology and all that, but onto social and cultural domains. So that's really important. So is it me or is art having more conversations with nature and science as the world turns, Tyler? Yeah, that, I think that's a great observation, and I think I think that's true. I think the you see more you know discussion that you know having um, uh, say learning arts and problem solving through arts you know is a way to um, expand our thinking um, beyond um, the boundaries you know that we're taught the received meanings you know that we get through our formal education, uh, and so. Here, it's about bringing disparate ideas together and coming up with other solutions. So I think to kind of make a dichotomy, I think on the artist side of things, um, artists appreciate from science, you know, the rigor, the fact-finding, you know, the facts uh, through the scientific method are, you know, shown to be proven over and over. And I think artists love to sort of uh, figure out how they can kind of engage with that. And then from the scientist side, where they are involved in so much rigor, I think when they encounter um, the creative side of things, which is about looking at everything as a metaphor, uh, looking at everything as having multiple layers of meaning, that helps them expand beyond, you know, or to create other possibilities, you know, for what they're investigating. So I think there is more of that happening. I also think in the art world itself, over the past decade or, you know, more, there's been a continued, you know, dissolution of the boundaries between what is, quote, fine art, popular culture, you know, things like that. And I think a lot of that has to do with the reduced gatekeeping, meaning that, you know, having to go through galleries or museums or art schools, um, that really you can just kind of 
go to social media, go to the web and things like that. And, you know, if you're objective as sales or just exposure, you know, there's now more of a legitimacy through that as opposed to having to be legitimized by other people. And in this case, as well as other places, the artists are forcing, they're nudging patrons to re-examine places and things, including the world without people. So, um, but most of the work has been done during the pandemic, but not all of it. So, Tyler, you as the, the curator, and you're drawing from essentially most the faculty at the Orange Coast College. It's just, it's riches galore there that have they found, the artists, have they found this stretch a time to rethink themselves? And you're using the gallery as a platform for patrons to do the same. Yeah, exactly. I think so. I mean, I think, again, I think with artists who look at their work in a, you know, as metaphors, you know, to um, examine the world around them, I, I, I would hope that, you know, once it's on exhibit, they would think that it does become this kind of platform for creating discussion. And I think it, this show has certainly done it. Yeah, and it, it was interesting with it being a faculty-dominated show that what I found, you know, sort of, sort of had the idea, then I started looking at the work, uh, thinking at first just to kind of include some faculty and, you know, an outside artist and just sort of always mix it up like I always do. But I decided to kind of hone in more on the faculty because they sound maybe unbeknownst to themselves, and they also don't necessarily know each other because it's coming from four different departments, art, photography, digital media, um, and film and television, is that I found that there was this kind of pattern in their work where um, they were looking um, at our relationship to the world, to the environment, to other animals. And so I thought it, you know, it was valuable then to kind of bring that all together and that I then see it as kind of a microcosm, you know, that what's going on at Orange Coast Colleges and the art departments there is just a microcosm of what's going on in the larger world and what's on people's minds in the larger world. So I was really pleased by that. And, you know, this is the first in-person exhibition in 18 months after having closed back in March of 2020. So there, you know, at the openings, there was like a lot of energy, a lot of, there was a vibe. And I think what was really interesting is a lot of these artists were connecting with one another who hadn't seen each other, but connecting through their ideas. And, you know, I could hear all these conversations about brainstorming, saying, let's get together, let's continue the conversation. So that was really a nice thing to hear. That conversation, Tyler, tell us a little bit more. Was that a virtual kind? Did you have to, were you stuck into those frames or were you able to figure out a way to be out in a plaza on the campus or elsewhere so that they could see each other? Because th- these are visual people. <laughs> they work with media. They right. work, right? So how did, how did that sort yeah. of transaction occur? Uh, well, actually, you know, these were transactions were happening at the openings. We had two openings and uh, this past Thursday and Saturday. You know, for one, I think I real I can't. You know, I had I've been on campus quite a bit, but I realized a lot of them had not been on campus in 18 months. Wow. So one, they were just excited to see people in person. But I think part of that positive vibe and that um, energy then kind of led to these conversations. So, for example, one of the projects uh, is a collective um, under the name Mystery Ranch, and this was started by Kim Garrison. Steve Radosevich and Leland Means, where uh, Kim had inherited some land from her grandparents, 60 acres in southern Nevada, and this beautiful cabin in the middle of a Joshua Tree forest. And for the past two years, all three of them have been developing this into an artist residency building, some other buildings there, some tiny homes. And at the opening, um, they were having several conversations and already inviting people out 
to their residencies. And, and the kind of artists they invite out are ones that are concerned with the environment. Uh, so, for example, Kim is um, working hard on the Abe Kwame uh, National Monument uh, proposal, uh, which is the uh, Nevada side of the dividing line between Nevada and Canada, making all that stretch of land into a national monument. It's getting very close to happening, but oh. it also really shows the power of an artist and having some creative thinking of how to bring all sorts of people together. But again, inviting people already out um, to the ranch to start doing some residencies, that was just one example of a really you know, exciting conversation. Well, and the conversations you you set up in your powerful role as the curator, you're setting up conversations between the artist's work and the way you've installed this exhibit. Can you talk about that kind of a role? This is sort of like, wait a minute, no, I'm going to interrupt this conversation. I'm going to move this over here and, you know, sort of how how these uh, inanimate objects animate with the conversations that you see connecting the work. Right, yeah, and that, and that is always the task. Um, how, exactly how you said it is um, these inanimate objects, these objects that don't speak, they're silent objects. You know, so how do you, how do you activate the space between them? And that's really you know, through the exhibition design and being familiar with this, you know, the space. So, for example, in terms of um, I have one area where um, I have artists that are, um, that are having interesting conversations. So, for example, there's this one area where I would have um, this artist named Matthew Newman, who um, created these creatures that he calls gore hounds, and, it does, and he has made these resin creatures that are based on um, H.P. Lovecraft figures like Cthulhu, Eldritch, um, things like that. And um, they're you know basically horror, little horror monsters. He's created a, um, a sort of fake 1980s TV commercial where you have the dad playing with the kids, playing with the figures, and this kind of little cemetery diorama. And so it all feels like this kind of nostalgia thing, but in the context of the show, um, it's really about this kind of body horror. It's about the skeleton being on the outside, the insides being on the outside. That is, it's a metaphor for our internal anxiety and emotions being exposed to the outside, and and that what's going on in our head is, you know, in our feelings and our emotions, you know, are going through a lot. And so this is his way through the horror genre to expose that. But then that's juxtaposed by um, with an artist named Laurie Hassold, um, who makes these other also equally kind of skeletal type relics. But what she, what she does, she imagines these as kind of what she calls as future fossils, uh, where it's as if you have found these bones, because these look very skeletal and bone-like, mm-hmm. but they've incorporated plastic objects like, you know, baby doll heads and things like that, um, that humans have created. And so they look like a combination of like, plant material in terms of like roots, skeletons, and then also the um, man-made, human-made objects all incorporated into one another, suggesting that's how new life forms are going to eventually evolve. And then when you eventually find them as fossils or skeletons, those are the remnants of what you would find. And then also in that same area is an artist named Catherine Sheehan, um, who has created um, this really large-scale drawing called 405 Coyote, where she shows, um, and, and the reason it's in this area, because it's done in black and white, so it also has this very kind of stark quality mm-hmm. to it, um, like with these um, artists exploring bones. But you see kind of the bones of the freeway um, hovering overhead with a coyote in the foreground. And here the suggestion is is that, you know, how, how do these two worlds live together, the human-made world and the coyote, uh, where their territory is being subdivided by freeways, 
and we, now we see coyotes as we encroach um, on their territory that they come more and more um, into the suburbs. You know, I, I see them every day when I ride my bike. We up to all Santa do, Anna Tyler. Trail. That's what's so um, interesting. So it really, yeah. it does sort of, it sort of st- starts up, the, um, you know, like a, with the battery, it just charges. It charges the conversation because we've all we've all been in segments of that composition. So it's it's yes, you were saying. <laughs> yeah, no, no, exactly, and and uh, and uh, just to kind of you know finish out the you know that little constellation of um, these artists. There's another artist here named Noah Thomas who has done these very large scale sculptures where he's taken found trees, uh, then he brings them into a studio. And then he'll build up an, um, a, a geometric armature around them as if a new branch is being formed um, around this kind of severed found branch as if it, it, in a way it's almost as if he's using kind of a digital technology or 3D printing in his own own manner to recreate, to give life back to this tree. You know, but the odd thing when you look at it, you know, there's no right, there are no right angles in nature you know, yet he's creating mm-hmm. all these right angles because mm-hmm. he's a human. That's what he's most familiar with in terms of, you know, how you build things um, using geometry. Uh, so it, again, shows this, you know, world in which, you know, humans are not separate from nature. I mean, it's it's kind of an easy way in order to emphasize this human-centric world to say human and nature, but, of course, humans are part of nature and inseparable. Um, and I think that sculpture um, shows that as we, even though we might try to rec- recuperate you know, a fallen tree, it's hard not to bring how it is we look at the world, you know, to that recuperation, and in this case, to the geometry that is built up around it. We'll get to that tree and move on to another section. But first, I want to let my guests know if they've just joined us. My guest is Tyler Stallings, director and curator at Orange Coast College's Doyle Arts Pavilion, with an installation of 32-plus artists entitled... What Will Remain Art in the Time of Human Dominion, Exploring the Inseparability of Humanity-Nature. Doors are open Monday through Thursday and first Saturdays, and that first Saturday is right around the corner. October 11th through the December 4th is when you can make your plans, folks. So the tree, let's talk about also in another section, Chelsea Mosher's photography in the what is left behind in the forested area yeah yeah her, her process is really interesting so chelsea mosher what she's been doing of late is going to uh, where there were forest fires um, in this case she went to the angeles national forest when there were some recent fires there and she collect and she takes photographs of you know literally what's left after the fire in terms of the burned forest and then she'll also take ash, you know, from that location, and she'll bring it back to her darkroom studio. And then using a traditional uh, printing technique um, that is kind of printing, a, you know, gel- using a enlarger and um, using chemicals and then printing, you know, putting the image on the uh, paper and capturing it. But what she does is that she'll take that ash and she'll um, spread it across glass, and then she'll take the negative of the picture she took of the forest and say, for example, put it in the center of that ash, then all of that together becomes a new negative, the ash and the image of the forest, and then that is what she'll make the print of. So then when you're in the gallery, what you're seeing is 
um, a large um, of what looks like um, kind of dust, you know, for example, in this image at the center of, the, of this um, burned forest. And sort of not till you read the label do you realize, you know, oh, that she's incorporating into the image, you know, the um, what's left of this forest fire. And I think part of her point is that, you know, a lot of these forest fires have been caused by, you know, uh, have been human-made, um, either through electrical lines falling, people lighting the fires, um, you know, the usual campfire, um, all sorts of things. And it, again, it, it's sort of, you know, as you start expanding your thoughts about it, it, you know, points to how we have, you know, more and more people in kind of um, uncontrolled development, you know, moving into these areas and, just as we move into the territories, the animals move into the territories, you know, of the forest um, also, and and so it creates more and more, you know, danger. And I think I think one thing I like about her work too, and is that I think it's also a metaphor through this kind of collapsing of her as the photographer, her taking actual remnants from the place that is the ash, and then the image she's mm-hmm. taking um, that. I kind of also see it, I mean, this might be a stretch in a way, but I think it's something that is suffused throughout the show, which is this idea of empathy. And, you know, empathy is really something that occurs when you begin to collapse the space, you know, between things, you know, meaning that, uh, you know, when two people are talking, the more you find in common, and that could be simply, hey, we're both human beings, (laughs) you know, we're not judging each other based on our, um, our class or skin color, um, our gender or things like that, we're, we're beginning to relate because we're talking to one another. So the space begins to collapse. And I think that, you know, she's doing that in her work. And and for me, it, that's been a, a larger thing through a lot of my curatorial projects. Like, for example, in 2003, I did this exhibition. It was the first exhibition on the idea of whiteness as um, being based on, uh, you know, politics and not biology. It's called Whiteness, a Wayward Construction. You know, I've done a shows on interspecies art, um, I've done shows on the idea of science fiction, you know, as it's expressed throughout the Americas, because science fiction as a genre is about world building, you know, so you make the decisions about what you put in this world, you know, the economy, the types of people, you know, that kind of thing. So I think all of it is about how it is, you know, we realize that, you know, that we all are connected to one another. Um, there's no such thing as purity. <laughs> um, and uh, and we're interrelated and really moving forward you know, to get into the symbiocene stage as opposed to remaining in the anthropocene, more fatalistic anthropocene stage, uh, you know, we need to kind of work on those relationships. There's no such thing as purity. That's going into the uh, the cross stitch in the guest bath. That's just <laughs> a, a really important frame. I, I'm not, we're not going to do justice to all the pieces in this installation you've curated, but I, I want to sort of to provoke listeners to consider to the best way you can sort of present what Cheryl Cotman has developed in her very provocative piece. Yeah, I think Cheryl Cotman's uh, work, who and she's somebody who's always been interested in uh, the scientific world, sort of data, you know, visualization, and she's done all sorts of projects around that. And so she has some what, what are deceptively simple pieces, but really just embody the idea behind the show. These two drawings called chimpanzee chair and bonobo chair and what she's done is she's taking um say the bonobo and has re-engineered their body through her drawing to be in the form of a chair of a of a sofa chair 
and the same with the chimpanzee. But, you know, she's the, she shows them with their eyes wide open, um, that is, they're still alive. And so here, you know, they've become furniture for humans. And that, you know, here she's underscoring how it is we use animals, you know, for ourselves, even when they're still alive. But she's also specifically chosen a chimpanzee and a bonobo because those are the two closest, those are the primates that are closest to us, both in DNA and intelligence among all the primates. So it's also this idea that, you know, if we can't, if we still can't relate to other intelligent, you know, mammals out there, um, whether it's other primates, dolphins, uh, whales, you know, crows, you know, even, you know, how, what hope, you know, you could also say in a fatalistic point of view, <laughs> what hope is there for, you know, us, you know, connecting, you know, with each other. Um, you know, you could say this idea with this focus on um, thinking about extraterrestrial, you know, encounters. Again, if we can't have form relationships with other intelligent beings on our planet already, how is it we think that we're going to be able to have those relationships with extraterrestrial beings, you know, just as another way to think about it? So there are those, so many other pieces. So we, we've talked about your curator role, but what are the, how are the patrons responding? Oh, I mean, you know, it's really, I've been pleasantly surprised. One, I mean, just in terms of not having been open for 18 months, and of course being on campus, it's always difficult to get to a campus gallery. But we've been, um, in our short time that we've already been open, we've had really good amount of people coming in. And, um, and again, uh, you know, I'm not always up there at the front, but when I am up there um, or when I'm kind of walking through the galleries, you know, I hear people talking, spending time with the work, um, you know, they're reading the labels because they're interested. So I think it's created a lot of good, you know, dialogue. We're talking just briefly a little patron story, and then we've got to send you on your way and wish people well. Check out the exhibition. Okay, yeah. And so I think one of my favorite moments, you know, um, in terms of, um, you know, people visiting is coming to, standing in front of the work of Will Hare Jr. Um, and it's this work um, where he has taken all of these photographs throughout Southern California without any people in them. And so what's left is like an empty Apple store, which you would never think of being empty, or going to uh, an amusement park area. Again, you would never think of it being empty or a freeway being empty. So he's found these right times to take all of these photographs, not using Photoshop, of just these completely built-out worlds uh, by humans, but being completely empty, sort of suggesting, as the title says, what will remain, that this is what will remain you oh, know, wow. if there were no more humans, oh. which is all the stuff that they built. Well, this all this exhibit, folks, it takes times, and I've barely nicked the surface. I'm going to be coming back. In closing, just quickly, events around this installation, and it, as for logistics, it's on the Orange Coast College campus. Folks, take Merrimack and keep going past the drive-ins, and at the fourth drive-in, you're right there. So um, just quickly, what events for people besides the first Saturday coming up? Yeah, so we have the first Saturday on November 6th and December 4th from uh, noon to 4 on each of those days. And then right now, I'm still working on other events, but we'll probably do some um, maybe uh, in-gallery conversations and um, some Zoom panels, too. 
Okay, well, thank you for your time, Tyler. I'm sorry I cut you off in the middle of your mid-patron story, but we got that dominion and the nature and the man all in there and the art. So my guest was Tyler Stallings, director and curator at Orange Coast College's Doyle Arts Pavilion with an installation, 32 artists entitled What Will Remain? Art in the Time of Human Dominion. Doors are open Monday through Thursday, and as we talked about first Saturdays, we'll be right back with David Ivers, artistic director of the South Coast repertory with this one-man play he's performing in a shot rang out thank you tyler thank you claudia Welcome back. My guest is David Ivers, Artistic Director of the South Coast Rep, and we're going to raise what we all wanted to cover is a lot. It's in Costa Mesa, and he's the performer in the one-man play, A Shot Rang Out, written by Richard Greenberg, a playwright with so many connections to South Coast Rep. Prior to his appointment at South Coast, it was like about a three-quarters of a year before the pandemic, I think, opened up. He was artistic director for the Arizona Theater Company. Before that, served as an actor-director at Utah Shakespeare Festival, leading up to his last role as artistic director. He was resident artist at Denver Center Theater Company, helmed productions at the Guthrie Theater, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, Berkeley Repertory Theater, South Coast Repertory. He taught at the University of Michigan, University of Minnesota, Southern Utah University, and at Southern Oregon University. That's where the Shakespeare Festivals. And he started strong with the South Coast Rep with American Mariachi. And that was like a half a year before the pandemic. Put the brakes on live performances everywhere. We'll give a nod to that playwright if we have chance. I don't think we will, though, to Jose Cruz Gonzalez, who's got another commission coming up. As we When we talk about how David Ivers' enterprising ways during the pandemic have really kept things going, unlike with lots of theater institutions around the country. David, come to us from his corner office, I believe, at the Rep in Costa Mesa. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, David Ivers. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. It's great to be here. Well, yeah, like on meth there. Congratulations on the return to live audiences, David. As one in your profession put it, David Ivers has managed to find and develop a good many opportunities behind and in front of the scenes to build this cultural institution in circumstances that has lapped his counterparts at other theaters. And we'll weave them into this together, I'm hoping. It's, but she, she described it, it's like the floaters bobbing at the surface of the water. He checks to see what's beneath and beyond in the opportunities for his theater. So kudos. <laughs> so oh, nice. absolutely. Thank so. You. It's a prerequisite because no one knows what nuggets come from this obvious coverage. I'd like for you to talk about what this hiatus without an audience these last 18 months, behind the scenes, you've been working really hard with audience building, show rescheduling, instructional performance programs, developing and rethinking which plays in the future. So we'll talk about that. And then I have a, another sort of cultural piece about this adjustment going sure. on. Sure. Well, yeah, I, I mean... It... <laughs> It was it's sort of a, it's been a very, I think, hard and challenging and enlightening um, and I would say tragic and sometimes inspiring 18, 19 months. And look, for me at South Coast Rep and the community, it all coincided with kind of getting to know South Coast Rep as one of its leaders and an employee and also a citizen of Orange County. So all those things were kind of happening at once. So 
you know, I, I didn't have, I guess, a filter of being deeply attached emotionally yet, although I am now, to either the institution or the community or our employees. I very much feel like the pandemic, through all the shuffling and reshuffling and looking for opportunity, helped focus us in some ways. I mean, I had said when I got here and when I got the job that I would commit to deepening relationships inside of community, innovating, continuing to be robust in our exploration of new works and also excellent works. And so I just kept coming back to that during the pandemic and thinking, okay, if these are the things I said I was going to do, how and in which way can we position them? And of course, you know, we did like what many theaters did, which was we, we went virtual on some things. But then we, we really, a year out, decided to, to go for this outside SCR moment with a partnership with Mission San Juan Capistrano, mm-hmm. launch live work this past summer, which was wildly successful, not just in terms of, you know, numbers, but frankly, in terms of the communities we reached and the percentage of people that had never been coming to South Coast Rep in Costa Mesa that all of a sudden were showing up at the mission. Those are all exciting things, but I'm the kind of guy that goes, great, wonderful, we'll keep doing it, what's next? You know, and I, I will just add into the mix that in, in addition to all that reshuffling, right, it's not just me. There's an extraordinary staff that has to say that magic word, yes, the willingness to sort of do it again, to look at it. And so I think what ended up happening is a lot of the departments inside of the institution, for whatever reason, we did some decent modeling, also started looking at the conservatory and, okay, how do we do this? How do we make this work? And that kept us moving in many directions. And then... You know, the most important key ingredient for all of it is, as uh, it doesn't really matter how it sounds, is I'm a dad, and I moved my family here, right? And I have a 9-year-old and a 12-year-old who were not 9 and 12 when this all started. And also, you know, it was important for them to see and their mom and myself be resilient and be trying to make things happen and make memories inside of what is, was, is and was horrific. So, last, last half full is what I say. So, and I just want to also just name those some of those things: the lab at SCR, outside SCR, and hashtag commission. So there, there were so many things, and you're also willing. <laughs> it's right there in the program. You're willing to crowdsource. You're inviting the latest show program for people to reach you, Ivers at SCR.org. So, yeah, way totally. to go! I mean. Totally. So, so your and your kiddos are seeing that they must that must your crowdsourcing must make you super hot with your kids. I know kids are are there well, are. Awesome. I don't know that they know. I don't <laughs> know that they know. You know, I try to shield them. I mean, it's not all it's not all uh, confetti, right? No, but you put yourself out there, right? And it, right. and it comes with deep scrutiny. Uh, but that's that's part of the game, right? And that's as I said to the staff, that's that's the blessed the blessed thing about living in a democracy, right? scrutiny comes on both sides you know you, you get lifted up and you get torn down and that's life and that is certainly the theater and at the moment it's it's really um, part of the uh, the sort of um, mechanics of the art at the moment which is you know there's a lot to, there's a lot to, to be held accountable for so. a lot so for those of you who've just joined us I'm shoehorning him in here this is we have so many more questions we're going to have time running for the second segment but my guest is David Ivers artistic director of the South Coast Rep in Costa Mesa and the performer in the one man play A Shot Rang Out I just wanted to ask when did you know David that the rep was ready 
let's do this to stage a play with a live audience again versus the Zoom screen that the play had been written, written to do either or. Was it your call or somebody else? It was, yeah, it was my call. I mean, it was my, it was my call in concert with other people. Obviously, I ran the theater in, in equal parts with managing director Paula Tomai, who was adventurous about, you know, kind of, I guess, for lack of a better term, rolling the dice. Really, the first live audiences came over the summer outside with outside SCR. That was so there's sort of two components here. That was extraordinary. It felt like we planned it a year in advance. We felt like summer was our best shot, that we'd be outside, and it worked in our favor, and we called it right. Being inside in Costa Mesa right now, which we are, has a whole different set of parameters. I mean, you know, between mask mandates and everything else, it just has a whole different kind of, uh, I don't know, set of, set of rules in a way. But what I did know was I felt very strongly, whether it was me or someone else, our best chances to come back inside were by greenlighting the smallest possible project, meaning the least amount of people that were talking to each other on stage, the least amount of people interacting because of COVID. And so we, you know, we just kept reshuffling and planning. And um, look, the audiences, as I say in the show, are heroic. They're, they're coming back. They're not at the numbers that have been as robust as they have been. But, but they're actually picking up. Uh, ticket sales are increasing. Okay. Houses are getting larger, and that's fantastic. And, you know, we, we just kept at it, looking at what are our best opportunities. And we didn't call them all right because we had a lot of plans. And we announced a lot we're coming back and then had to pull back, change titles. We lost artists. We lost certain rights, you know. So it was a constant, as we say, pivot. But here we are, and the hope is we'll steadily and slowly, with thoughtfulness and grace, start to continue moving forward with live performance. And we'll be outside again next summer. So that's great. Well, speaking, you know, thank you. Speaking of those moving parts you're talking about, we can all we can try to appreciate what you were juggling here. But I and I also want to ask to the the moment we've all been collectively sort of experiencing over the last 18 months. Did any, David, of the tectonic plates shifting under everyone steer you into some new directions that surprised you? Oh, I think all of it. I mean, yeah, I mean, we, yeah, we're in a complete new direction. I mean, we're, we're looking at, you know, we've did, we've, we've, COVID was, for someone like me who was new to the institution, you know, it gave me a lot of time to analyze. It gave me a lot of time to think about things like staffing and how we come back and the way in which we come back, what art we want to do. There's a lot of theaters that decided to come back, and, and rightfully so, with things that they had programmed. I said, I think we should be coming back with something that's ripped of the moment, that's born of now, something that we weren't expecting to do. Um, and so we did. I certainly have rethought the way staffing interfaces, the way responsibility changes. Um, we've made some large changes in the artistic staff, to the, I think, that are exciting and, and thrilling. And there's been other changes throughout the organization that I think are important. And yeah, I think, you know, the whole thing, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't really have a firm grasp on what it might be changing from because I hadn't been there long enough. I just knew that, that we had to start thinking about how do we look and sound a little bit different than we've been before uh, in certain areas. And so I, there's, a lot about, there's a lot about the moment to be thoughtful uh, that I appreciate. I, I don't appreciate much about, um, you know, the, the havoc that COVID has wreaked on the globe, you know. Um, 
but I do appreciate that I had time, which we often don't in the theater, to be, you know, thoughtful and methodical uh, in some ways. So I'm going to try for a tricky juxtaposition here to collapse the questions, too, is that let's say that Orange, that Costa Mesa, where South Coast Rep is located, it's kind of a kind of a division through Orange County with some really wildly different cultures and they are then these are on both sides of that delineation there are different sorts of political cultures and so I want to then move into how elegant it was that you ease into your actual one-man performance lights are all on and you are crossing over another divide from we were black and now we are live it's really elegant what you did there David yeah. Well, that's actually Tony Ficcone and not me, the director. Uh, fortunately, I just had to take instruction and try to learn the lines and, and do the best work I can. But that's really the vision of Tony and playwright Richard Green about how we come back, you know, and what it means. And, and to see the audience. And look, it's going to be undeniable that I'm up there. There's a, I'm sure there's a lot of conjecture out there that this, you know, it's, I, I don't even know necessarily what the conjecture is, but I can tell you that in my heart, one of the reasons for me to be up there was I, oh, I felt like the, the play, which is, a, I believe, a beautiful play and an important play to come back with, and it makes a lot of sense to come back, that if anyone was going to go up there and bring us back to sometimes audiences of 50 people, it should be one of the captains of the ship. And that's why I did it, and I believe it's a worthy, worthy play and a, and a beautiful thing. And I think, you know, it is a way to ease back in. It's not a, it's a demanding play on the audience. It's not an easy. It's not an easy uh, journey at all, all the time. But um, but I, I I think you're right. Tony and Richard did a beautiful sort of motif of how we ease back in, you know, together. And so you were talking about taking the directions, but you 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 were involved with collaborating with the playwright Richard Greenberg, were you not? You want to talk a little bit about that? Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, completely. I mean, of course, you know, you wrote it for me, so I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm intrinsic to it is that there's not a lot of separation in some ways between, like, you know, the play, the man, me, you know, the theater. It's all kind of one thing, which is why, you know, it's exciting, but it's also challenging. And yeah, we were deeply involved for weeks and weeks or months, almost years, you know, on developing it and looking at what it might be and deciding whether or not we should do it. But you two both had really, I'm guessing, pretty different experiences of the pandemic. That he he's been living in the same place in Chelsea for <laughs> for a few decades, and you've got you've recently moved into a place with your children. So there's so that the two of you had different things to bring to that divide you're crossing over. So I'm I'm just going to put that out there. But so you said the audiences, David, are growing. Tickets or sales keep going up and up and up. So are the audiences engaging differently as more and more people are filing in there? And because you've got to deliver all the lines all yourself. I was told there's, I can't remember the number as given how many words are in this play that you have to say. So you've got to keep concentrating on your role. But what is happening from the audience and that you're able to pick up on as the audience builds? Well, audiences, I mean, whether it's been 50 people or 300, you know, they've been incredible. I mean, really, uh, like, the show shifts quite a bit night to night. There are times when there's just raucous amounts of laughter, you know, in that first half. And then as the play turns and gets darker, you know, you can hear a pin drop and 
there's times when, you know, there's, there's not a sound and then they're on their feet at the end and you kind of go, oh, well, that's great. They were with it. I mean, I've, I've definitely felt all along like I've been heart-centered and that I, I, I absolutely feel uh, like I'm breathing with the audience. But where, how we breathe together changes every night. And I think there, there are some people that have written me that, you know, the, the pandemic mirrored this play for them in ways that, they, that, that was agonizing and they wish they didn't have to see. And some people that, that, you know, found it incredibly redemptive and are so glad that we did it. And I think that's kind of the point, right? You know, I, I never want to be, I don't know, you know, I never want to be part of something that, I think it's impossible in the theater to be part of something that, that has a hundred percent consensus. I would dare say it's, it's it's approaching the the opposite of art, if that's the case. You know, right, right. Well, that's what I mean about the Costa Mesa divide through Orange County is that you're probably getting all kinds of uh, reactions to uh, be, because of that sort of the, there is a cultural divide, and th- that's part of the tectonic plate I'm talking about that's shifting under yeah, us. I, mean, I think there is. I think I'm shielded from that a bit just as a performer because the institution is probably doing that right now, you know. But I think, you know, one of the things I think we're working on at South Coast Rep is, like, you know, everybody needs to see themselves on stage in our work, right? Absolutely. For it to open up with a, with a middle-aged white guy at the center or something. But if you look deep into the season and you look at all of our new initiatives, you're going to see always that there is a kind of commitment and a, and a deep belief that that community in all aspects, including politics, is represented, you know, in the work we do. Uh, I'm one of those believers where it gets really, really hard to ask for acceptance and to ask for people to, to be a part of something they may or may not agree with. If I, as a leader, don't preach tolerance and love and acceptance of points of views, that are different than mine. And humility. You know? It's in there. There's and there's tons of humility. humility. Completely. And I, people can take, you know, it's, I, I, people can take pot shots all day long. People can, can, can express themselves however they want. That is absolutely terrific with me because it is how that we eventually, if we ignore it or shut it down, we eventually lose the ability then to have a conversation about it. And it's only in the conversation where, where we have the opportunity for us, and I'm not going to use the words to come together, but for us to figure out where we live and how we start to think about living together, you know? And so at any time the theater or any art can do that, I'm, I'm all in. And even, even if I'm at the center of it or not. So and I, I appreciate that you're talking about how the demographic starts out with the shot rang out and that you will move out into other kinds of representations. And the rep is going to be a Christmas carol, what I learned in Paris in our town. I wanted for you as a, in closing to talk about there's been a lot of consideration of your relationship being pretty close. Pretty, It's a pretty cool chemistry between the Sagerstrom president, Casey Wright, and you, your pairing. It's a very promising dynamic to launch launch many cool enterprises around the Center for the Arts in general. Can you talk to that? Yeah, Casey Ritz is a great guy. And as a matter of fact, I, w- I wouldn't say that, that we pal around all the time. We, we've, we've connected several times. I immediately recognized in him great intelligence, warmth, sense of humor, and savvy, you know. And yeah, we, I mean, obviously we're, we're in a partnership already with Pacific Symphony, which we had planned to do pre-COVID. 
with a Mozart project, which is exciting, that Carl St. Clair and I will take stage together. And yeah, there's been really wonderful beginnings of conversations with Casey about, hey, what, what do we want to do? Don't we believe that it's incredibly important for our audiences and our community to see these buildings, which live next to each other, actually not only collaborating, but, but lifting each other up? And I am totally committed to that, and I think he is too, and I think the algebra is promising, you know? Very, very fine. Well, I'm going to speak in a humility on my end. I really apologize for rushing this. There were so many layers to say about the role and what you thought about that. I appreciate your giving us the time today as your enterprising ways take you to, to many, many more duties you've got this morning. Thank you so much for your time today on Ask a Leader. Hey, thank you. We are grateful here at South Coast Rep, and I uh, wish you all well. Thanks so much for the time. Thanks a lot. My guest was David Ivers, and he is the Artistic Director at the South Coast Rep in Costa Mesa. And his new show that went live is A Shot Rang Out. He's the solo performer in that, and the play was written by Richard Greenberg. The production runs through November 6th. So that's going to be my wrap today. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone.